audio check. On today's episode, we have Tim Ulbrich from Your Financial Pharmacist, and we're going to talk about canceling student debt. Hope you enjoy. Hello, everyone. This is RX Radio. I'm your host, Richard Waithe, and I have today with me here, Dr. Tim Ulbrich. Tim, how's it going? Good. Doing well. Thanks, Thanks Richard, for having me on the show. Love what you're doing over at RX Radio. I, I appreciate the kind words. I am excited to have you on because, one, I've heard, obviously, great things about you um, from the other Tim from your financial pharmacist that we had on here. Um, yeah. So, you know, we heard a little bit of background, but I'd like to, you know, we'll, we'll hear a little bit, again, that part from you. Uh, as sure. to like how things got started. Um, but just to, to give a little preface to what the episode today is going to be like, um, the news with uh, the presidential candidates and their debt cancellations, I immediately thought about, you know, what your like organization, your financial pharmacist and how, you know, things like this are could potentially impact people's financial plans. So mm-hmm. um, you guys Im- immediately came to mind. So I, I want to chop it up with you to like you know, dive into it. Um, get some ideas, get some exact facts as to like what it is that's going on. But before we do that, um, if you could just start off by telling listeners a little bit about yourself. Absolutely. Thank you, Richard. Yeah, great, great topic. Excited to jump in the, the conversation. So I graduated uh, with my PharmD uh, from Ohio Northern University in 2008. Uh, did my uh, community residency uh, also alongside academia uh, at the Ohio State University in 2009. And then for about 10 years, I was up at Northeast Ohio Medical University uh, in the Akron Cleveland area in various roles, uh, patient care, service development, ambulatory care, community care, uh, did some administrative work in, in admissions and student affairs, and really developed a passion for professional development and helping students identify uh, their career path and to really help them empower them along that path. And that really intersected nicely for me uh, with the financial piece, uh, which really came to be in 2015 with the beginnings of Your Financial Pharmacist, which I started. And uh, of course, I know you had an opportunity to interview Tim, and we also have another Tim, uh, hopefully no more Tims in the mix after three. <laughs> that should um, be in the rules. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, but I went through uh, a journey of paying off a, a couple hundred thousand dollars of debt. Obviously, I'm, I'm being casual about that just out of sake of brevity so we can get into the discussion and, and really felt like I lived a little bit on an island while going through that journey and, and didn't really hear many pharmacists talking about this topic, talking about issues like we're going to talk about right here tonight. And so I reached out to 100 of my closest colleagues and friends and said, hey, I'm thinking about starting a blog around personal finance and pharmacy. What do you think? And the responses I got to that were really overwhelming. And I think incredible for me to hear, OK, others are interested in this. It's not just for financial nerds. And many people in pharmacy are feeling some of the pressures and pains around personal finance, especially those making the transition from student to new practitioners. So that be- began Your Financial Pharmacist, which started as a blog. We then launched the podcast in summer 2017. We just crossed our 100th episode. And we've got comprehensive financial planning, lots of resources and tools, all designed to help the, the pharmacy professional on their path towards achieving financial freedom, which obviously student loans is a big, big part of that. So I think this conversation uh, is timely. And now currently, just this past fall, I transitioned back to Ohio State University and I direct uh, the Master's in Health System Pharmacy Administration. So again, a lot of intersection between professional development. I really see personal finance being a big piece of professional development. And I'm excited that we as a profession are starting to embrace that personal finance is a topic that I think 
many, most agree that we need to be addressing as a part of one's professional development. Yeah. So I think this is a prime example of, you know, find a passion, start creating content around it, and then all of a sudden it could potentially become either a business or a side hustle. So I, you're, yeah. you're a great example of that. Uh, also, before we jump into everything, you mentioned uh, that you're, you're uh, part of the master's program at Ohio State now. Can you maybe give shed some light on the topic of maybe what a pharmacist could benefit from going through a program like that? Because I get that question a lot. I see it a lot. Like, should I do this master? Should I do X, Y, Z? That's extra, um, you know, an extra degree, which a lot of times I think it's not an easy answer. Um, sometimes I'll, I'll discourage it depending on what their sure. you know, motives are. Sometimes I'll say it's a great idea. Can you shed some light as to why that yeah. might be a good or a bad idea for that particular program? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think you nailed one of the key questions that you need that, that your listeners need to ask themselves or if they're advising others is what's the motive? What's the reason? Uh, because with any master's program, whether it be a program like I directed Ohio State, which is simply a master's around health system, pharmacy administration. So really, really gearing people to be in administrative roles in health system pharmacy. So this could be director of pharmacy, chief pharmacy officer, operations manager, uh, all types of roles that one could take, depending on the, the type of program that they engage in. But whether it's a health system pharmacy administration master's, whether it's a PhD, an MBA, an MHA, an MPH, you know, so many students I would advise, I often felt like they were enamored the degree or really couldn't connect it to why they wanted the degree and how that helped them along their career path. So I always encourage people take a step back regardless of the program and really have some good deep conversations and self-reflection about what's the path. And it may not be crystal clear, but what are the things that I really identify with? What are the things that energize me that I want to do more of regardless of how much time I spend? And what are the things that exhaust me and, and how can I better align my career and my job towards those things that really give you energy. And if a master's degree or if a residency or if a PhD, whatever be the case, helps you get there and you can specifically put an ROI on that path, then I think that that is worthwhile to consider. But I think for many people that may not necessarily uh, be the case. And so for specifically our program, and your question is actually a timely one, because right now and historically, our program at Ohio State's been around since 1959 and almost entirely for that time has been paired with a two years of residency and the master's degree that are happen sim happening simultaneously. And we just now are getting ready to convert that program to an online offering, which is going to open that up to working professionals. And so the way I always describe it is if, if somebody's out there in the workforce, typically is, is working full time, maybe they didn't complete residency training, maybe they only did a PGY-1, have interest in administrative roles, or maybe their leadership has identified them as an emerging leader, often they may want them to enroll in a program like this to help fast track their skill set around things like operations and inventory management and supply chain and patient safety, uh, leadership, entrepreneurship, all these types of skills that certainly with enough years of experience that you can get, but typically in the inpatient health system setting, the leadership will often identify people and say, okay, we really want them to go into this program so they can evolve into the next, next role that will be along their career path. Gotcha. Great. Great. Well, that's a lot of, a lot of insight for, um, for the listeners. I really appreciate that. Yeah. Okay. Let's let's jump into it here. So I'm also going to uh, start off by saying that we're going to discuss uh, some ideas that are presented by political candidates. Um, either maybe if if you're listening to this, maybe affiliated with your particular views or not. But mm -hmm. we are talking about this solely to present the facts and present what the ideas are that are being presented around canceling student debt. Uh, neither one of us 
both individually or our organizations are taking a side with what we think is um, a good idea or not with some of the policies that are presented by these candidates. So I want to give that disclaimer here that no matter how you hear us describing a potential idea, it's solely to give uh, information about it and or play devil's advocate uh, to get, you know, both sides or to get a better understanding as to how this Mm -hmm. could work. Um, so now that we've gotten that disclaimer out of the way, uh, let's jump in by talking about uh, Bernie Sanders' plan that was recently announced. If you can just give us some background on that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and before we jump into Bernie's plan, uh, Richard, if I could even build on what you said there, because I think you articulated really well. I also would just encourage your listeners that these proposals, you know, we're really far away from these potentially being implemented. And so I think it's good to think and reflect on them for your own personal financial situation. But we still have current status and we'll talk about some current forgiveness plans and other things that are actually in place right now. So I think as you hear these, I don't want any of your listeners to run and begin to make decisions uh, on their own personal financial situation until some of these either go into place as they're currently proposed. Maybe they don't happen at all or they get modified to some degree. So Bernie's plan, and I think that's a good one to start because it's probably the easiest to understand. So here we're referring to Bernie Sanders plan just announced last week, and it's really a part of a more comprehensive college for all program. So, you know, a common theme you've been hearing among some of the candidates is uh, free tuition for public universities and community college. And so this this plan around loan forgiveness for Bernie Sanders is a part of that more comprehensive college for all program. And this is really the most ambitious plan yet that we've seen that's trying to address what many of your listeners I'm sure have heard of is the $1.4 trillion student loan debt problem in our nation. And we could debate all night long about how we've gotten there, but I think the better part is what does this plan address? And really what it says is it's available to all of the nation's almost 45 million student loan borrowers for both federal student loans and private student loans. And there's no eligibility criteria for who would be forgiven. And that's going to be an important distinction when we talk in in a little bit about Elizabeth Warren's plan. So here, it doesn't matter if you make $250,000 or you make $45,000. It doesn't matter if you have $200,000 of debt or you have $20,000 of debt. Everyone is included. There are no specific eligibility criteria when it comes to Bernie Sanders' plan. Now, did they, did, I'm not sure if you might've seen this, but the way that you just described it as was as this is one plan where we're in this one plan, we're going to get, you know, free college, whatever. And we're also going to get this um, great student loan, you know, forgiveness plan, whatever. Is there Mm -hmm. a chance that that's going to be that that's potential exclusive or was it clear in kind of what you've seen that this is going to be one package into like one bill, let's say? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think your question really gets to the point that when we're seeing plans like this and think about any previous presidential election, you know, really reflect back on some major policy issues that came forward and how many of them got implemented as they were presented as a policy issue during a primary. How did that change when you actually got into the the general election and you narrowed down the, the pool? And then once somebody was in office, what did that actually look like when it got implemented? So I don't know. I think that will all you know, go forward in terms of how does this conversation shape? And I think that will be a part based on the reaction of the the votership here in the country as as they get some receptiveness on this issue. Will it be packaged as it's currently presented in terms of a broader uh, bill or however it gets gets included in terms of free tuition? Um, and, and another part of this too, Richard, which I think is worth noting, is that often people say, well, this is great, but it doesn't really address 
you know, what about in the future when somebody goes to a private school and they rack up debt? We still have very high interest rates, well above, you know, what, what you can buy a home for. So if you look at what our current pharmacy students are borrowing for their federal loans, you know, many of the students now are looking at interest rates six to eight percent. And what you can buy a home for in a 30 year mortgage is now down, I think, in the high threes. You know, that's it's a very stark difference. And a lot of people ask, why is it so expensive in terms of interest rates on loans? And so what Bernie is also proposing is that the student loan interest rates would be capped at just under two percent. So, again, will this happen? How is it going to get funded? How will it be approved? how will be proposed, I think is all something to watch. But certainly this plan is the most ambitious. It's the most comprehensive. And there's no exclusion criteria. Yeah. I just, I hate when like, you know, politics are, or politicians are presenting a bill or they're voting on a bill, but that one bill has like 10 different things in it. And some of them don't even relate yeah. to each other. And then it's like, it didn't go through because line item seven was like, was not great, you know? So I don't know. Yeah. Hopefully it can be something that, you know, the American people can look at individually and make a decision on instead of forcing it to be, you know, one whole package. But um, all right. So how, let's just say, you know, things are going well, like uh, he decides he wants to implement this. Bernie Sanders decides to implement this for him. Things are going well. And it seems like his plan is about to come to fruition. How would he actually pay for it? Yeah, this is the million dollar question, right? Whether it's Bernie Sanders plan, Elizabeth Warren's plan, or, or even a modified version of either one of these is that you can't just erase that. Obviously, when you look at student loans and interest, Ultimately, that's a revenue stream for the federal government. So what Bernie Sanders is essentially proposing here is what's referred to as a financial transaction tax or an FTT. And it's really just a fancy way to say that there would be a small tax, I guess small, depending on how you define it and how you view taxes, that'd be about a 0.5% tax on stock trades. So if you were to buy $100 worth of stock, essentially you'd get a 50 cent charge. Now, it's interesting because as I read that, you know, Richard, I, I started to think about well, why, why go after investments? Why go after stocks? And what will be included? What, what will not be included in terms of this tax? And I also started to think that if you think about the individuals that are often buying high amounts of stock, especially outside of retirement accounts, I have to believe they're going to find other ways to divert having to pay taxes such as this, such as, oh, maybe I'll put more of my money into real estate or I'll do other, other types of investments. So again, it, it's good to think about this question, how will it be paid for? And looking at the status quo of how people purchase stocks, the estimation through this plan is that the financial transaction tax, which would be a 0.5% tax on stock trades, would essentially cover the cost for the loan forgiveness provisions. Hmm. That's interesting. I mean, it's 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 definitely I I haven't really heard of a lot of plans that targeted that specifically. I know they've talked about increasing, you know, corporate taxes and um, taxes on when when you actually make a profit off of, you know, mm -hmm. off of a stock trade. But, you know, this is really a little different. But um, any other additional information around Bernie's plan before we move on to Warren's plan? Yeah, I, I think a, a comment I would just make here, I think is is a good one. And, and we can come back to this after talking about Elizabeth Warren's plan. But I think there's some really just interesting issues that that when we talk about loan forgiveness, it really presents a much broader conversation around, you know, why is college the cost that it is? Why are the interest rates the way that it is? How much of the borrowing is related to tuition and why is tuition creeping up at a rate that is outpacing inflation? By, by a significant amount and how much of the borrowing is due to cost of living and how do we teach 
more about personal finance. And so this very much feels what, you know, when, when you and I talked about this leading up to, uh, and you emailed me about the opportunity to do this, it almost feels like you're peeling back the layers of an onion. And so what I, what I hope we can do here is just start to begin a conversation among your listeners, among our community, that this, when you talk about student loans, you talk about loan forgiveness, you talk about student loan debt and a broader part of just debt in general, it's never one issue, in my opinion, that's really just going to solve the problem, right? You have to really holistically look at many of these variables, which starts to then get into some very interesting discussions around socioeconomic status and how do we teach things and all, all types of variables that I'm hopeful your listeners, while they hear these plans, start to think of some of those broader aspects as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. All right, so let's move on to Warren's plan. How, what is her plan? Um, give us some details, some basics around that, and then we can see how it compares to what Bernie's plan was. Yeah, think about Elizabeth Warren's plan. Essentially, it's a scaled-back version of Elizabeth Warren's plan. So instead of saying that there's no eligibility criteria and it's open to everyone, regardless of income limits, regardless of debt loads, essentially, Elizabeth Warren's plan put some more restrictions around the forgiveness provisions so that it would, it would cancel student loan debt for approximately 95% of borrowers, not 100% of borrowers. And it's estimated from, from their estimations that it would cancel student loan debt in its entirety for um, a large portion of those because of how they have the caps on both the indebtedness as well as the income. So let me explain the restrictions here for a minute. Again, Bernie's plan says no eligibility criteria. Elizabeth Warren's plan says that we will cancel $50,000 in student loan debt for every person with a household income of under $100,000. So let me say that again. It would cancel $50,000 in student loan debt for every person that has a household income under $100,000. So hopefully your your listeners are thinking, okay, well, $50,000 of debt, we know the average indebtedness of a pharmacy graduate today is about $160,000. And when you say household income under 100,000, we know the average income of a pharmacist while it's changing is is above or or close to that threshold of $100,000. So would this even be applicable for pharmacists? And the answer is yes, maybe. So the question then is, what about this group that makes more than $100,000? And essentially what they have is some phase-out provision. So it would provide for those making between $100,000 and $250,000 of household income. So that's an important variable to keep in mind that you would have some forgiveness, but it wouldn't be to the full amount of the $50,000. So the $50,000 in cancellation, which is the maximum amount under Warren's plan, phases out by $1 for every $3 in income above $100,000. So for example, Richard, if you made $130,000, instead of getting $50,000 of forgiveness, because of that phase out, you get $40,000 in cancellation. And if somebody had a household income of $160,000, instead of $50,000 of maximum forgiveness, they would only get $30,000. So if you make under $100,000, you get the full $50,000 maximum amount forgiven. But if you make between $100,000 and $250,000, you get a lesser amount of that depending on how much you make. And then if you have a household income above $250,000, which could be the case, if you have, let's say, two pharmacists, a pharmacist physician, a pharmacist, another high income in the household, you would be excluded altogether with no debt cancellation. So again, while we think in pharmacy, high debt loads, high income, if you really look at the general population of those that have student loan debt, I think the last average I saw was somewhere around the mid-30s. And obviously, we know the median household income in the country is about 55 to 57. So for the vast majority, while it may not be the case for pharmacists, the vast majority would have you know, $50,000 or close to that, that would be forgiven as the maximum in this situation. 
So, and, you know, it's important to note that while a pharmacist might not see, you know, 100% cancellation as, as another individual, it still would be helpful. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. even $30,000 off of my loan would be helpful. And uh, especially if it gets accompanied by some, you know, cut of an interest rate, you know, I think that's yeah. going to be a huge deal, which I'm not sure if she proposed that in the plan or not, but I mean, that would be a huge I didn't, deal. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't see that. And, and with her, she may, she may have as well. But it, I think it's also important to note that both of these also mention um, private student loans being eligible for cancellation. And I think that's something really interesting to watch because you think of all the pharmacists who rightfully so for better interest rates, they weren't pursuing loan forgiveness, they refinanced, they had significant savings. How might this impact them if these plans go into place? And so while that sounds really good, I, I just think that tracking that and trying to identify that and now you're getting into the private sector when you're dealing with those companies will something like that really become a reality or will it stay in the federal system but right now both of these plans as is do mention private student private student loan debt cancellation as well and along some of these lines uh what about bankruptcy has any of them talked about you know because i think the student loan is one of the only type of debt in the in you know, in the nation that you cannot declare bankruptcy on. Have have you seen anything around that or, or potential ways that that might come to fruition as, you know, this problem just starts to grow beyond, you know, a yeah, trillion dollars? I, I, I haven't yet. I think that's a really, a really good point. I mean, there's, there's stories now that are floating around of uh, paychecks, you know, that are being garnished wages and other things in terms of how, how they're going after these, these student loan types of debts that are outstanding. And I think when you look at this number, and I think in pharmacy, to your point, Richard, you know, especially as we see there are people that maybe can't find employment or do so at a much lesser value. If they have three hundred, four hundred thousand dollars of debt, which certainly is our stories that we have heard, those type of situations, I think, um, you know, certainly could come to be. One of the things we can come back to though is there's strategies that those individuals should be thinking about, such as income-driven repayment plans that would allow you to eventually pursue, even over a long period of time, forgiveness and would adjust up as your income. Uh, would go up. So I think I think it's a good question. Um, I have seen a couple of crazy stories of people fleeing the country, which is really sad. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, That's you know, crazy. I hope that but I want I want people to hear there's options and we can come back and talk more about this, whether it's deferment, forbearance, seeking out an income driven repayment plan, working with your lender to really, you know, just like you would on an outstanding credit card payment, trying to do whatever you can to establish a payment plan. Really you want to do anything that you can do to make sure that you go, don't go into default or in a situation that would have a negative impact on your credit. Makes a lot of sense. All right. So what if, um, let's just say none of these go through and we're stuck with kind of what we have now. And um, what is it now that's available for programs for pharmacists or I would say, you know, any student, I guess, that is, is a part of a loan forgiveness program? Yeah, the mo- most common current situation we're in, which which obviously there's lots of debate about this and, and whether it would stay. And I think that'll be a big part of the conversation when Bernie's and Elizabeth's and other plans come forward. We talk a lot about on our podcast and our website, we've got lots of resources around public service loan forgiveness, also known as PSLF. So in my estimation, about 20 to 25% of all pharmacy graduates qualify for public service loan forgiveness. Now, that doesn't mean that it's the right decision for them. There's lots of options that are out there. It's very much an individual situation, but it does impact a big percentage of pharmacy graduates. And essentially what public service loan forgiveness says is that if you work for a qualifying employer, 
which is most commonly going to be a not-for-profit employer. So for those that are in hospital, inpatient health system, underserved types of settings, government work. If you're working for a government entity or not-for-profit institution, uh, if you make um, payments under a qualifying repayment plan, which is typically an income-driven repayment plan that people are going to be looking at, if you're working full-time, and if you make 120 payments, they don't have to be consecutive, but 10 years worth of payments, when it's all said and done, you essentially would have any remaining balance that's forgiven. It would be forgiven tax-free. So for pharmacists that are especially facing a high debt-to-income ratio, so let's say somebody listening has $200,000 of debt and they're making $100,000 a year, if they're working for a not-profit, depending on their personal situation, it's usually at least worth evaluating among other options. And of course, you have to consider the variable of how do I feel about the debt and am I, am I okay with some of the unknowns around public service loan forgiveness? And we talk a lot about this issue exactly on episode 78 of the Orphanage Pharmacist podcast, if any of your listeners want to hear some more discussion we have on that. So public service loan forgiveness is, is a great option that you should at least be evaluating if you work in the in the public not-for-profit government sector. And then, Rich, a lot of people don't actually know that there's also a non-public service loan forgiveness option that's out there through the federal government as well. So whereas with public service loan forgiveness or PSLF, you have to work for a qualifying employer, with non-PSLF, it doesn't matter who you work for. So it doesn't have to be a not-for-profit. You could work for uh, Walgreens, CVS, Rite Aid, whomever, for-profit hospital. But the kicker is instead of 10 years, you're looking at 20 to 25 years. And instead of tax-free forgiveness, you're ultimately going to have an income tax bill on the amount that's forgiven. So some more planning and logistics you have to think about. But there's a very small percentage of people in our estimation and research, those that are in the, in the for-profit sector of work that have a very high debt-to-income ratio, they may consider non-PSLF, especially if they can't afford their monthly payments for whatever reason. And so th those are the current options. The other, the other one, um, there are some state forgiveness plans. I just read a, an article recently in the Wall Street Journal about more state forgiveness plans that are popping up. So I'd encourage your listeners to check out state information. And then obviously there's some of the military plans. And I've seen some unique programs around, for example, those that work in underserved settings that address some of the opioid issues. There's some forgiveness plans types of things out there. Um, and, and I want to reference your listeners to uh, credit here to Tim Church wrote, a very comprehensive, great blog post uh, that helps people evaluate all the different repayment options that are out there. Not to say this is the right one or this is the right one, but to look at all the options, look at your personal situation, and then try to navigate it and work through which of those may be best. And that's over at yourfinancialpharmacist.com slash ultimate. And I'll definitely link that up in the show notes as well to make it easier. Um, you know, if anyone wants to just look, uh, look in the show notes to get links to everything that uh, Tim has just mentioned. Quick question about the uh, the non uh, the, or the for profit forgiveness plan. It, what yeah. qualifications are are in play there, if any? Yeah, not not really. I mean, you have to still um, use one of the income based repayment plans. So, which is what you'd want to do anyways, because the goal would be to minimize payments, maximize forgiveness. Um, the biggest things, as I mentioned, is that. Uh, when it's all said and done, you're going to have an income tax bill that you're going to have to plan for. So it requires some work, in my opinion, you know, working with an accountant to do some projections, running some numbers. But the way that would work is, let's say your um, your federal income taxes rate is 20 percent 20, 20 years from now. If you've got one hundred thousand dollars left over, that essentially that year when you go to file your taxes, 
it's going to treat that amount that's forgiven, in that case, $100,000, as taxable income. So you'd have, depending on the rest of your financial situation, an additional tax bill to pay. Because if you make $100,000 that year and you have $100,000 that's forgiven, the IRS that year is going to look at it as if you made $200,000. But all along, you probably were only paying that year and having withholdings based on your $100,000 of income. So there's some more planning. And it really takes, in my opinion, somebody to have a, a very high debt-to-income ratio um, that's really in, in a hardship. Maybe they have a lower income situation that they're struggling to make payments. And I think you also have to, to especially here, look at the math side by side with can you really kind of ride this out for 20 to 25 years? I mean, I, I know I felt after two, three, four years, like I got to get these things off my back. But certainly there are some people I think that very much could have the mindset of, hey, I'm going to let this ride. I'm going to treat it like a mortgage and it's part of the plan. And, and they're methodical in how they approach that. It's like a lifestyle tax almost. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's what I like to call it. Make it justify that a little bit. Yeah. Um, so l- let's get into a little bit of hypotheticals here. Um, I mean, and this is actually real for some people that actually pay off their loans eventually. But yeah. let's just say that uh, this some of these plans were to come into place and um, some pharmacists were in a position where, you know, maybe from one day to the next, obviously, you know, this could take years to come into play. Um, but let's just say from one day to the next, they all of a sudden don't have that extra 500 to $1,500 loan payment, um, you know, per month. What would you advise that they do instead of, you know, just living a fancier mm-hmm. lifestyle? Or maybe they should live a fancier lifestyle. But what, what would you advise that they would do with that extra specific amount of money? Yeah. Now, now this is a fun question, right? <laughs> well, you know, what, what to do with extra cash each and every month. And and this was real for my wife, Jess and I, when we went through our journey, uh, we were paying off aggressively as we were getting toward the end, about $2,500 a month toward our student loan on top of the payment. So all of a sudden you get to the zero payment and then it's a conversation of, Hey, what are we going to now do with this money? We've been allocating toward our student loans each and every month. That is a fun, motivating conversation to have. So we, we talk all the time on the podcast and on our blog and when we're speaking about this is is a great example of why it is so important to articulate and write down your financial goals and prioritize those goals. Because whether it's at some point you have your loan forg- loans forgiven, whether you get a raise, whether you're able to cut your expenses, whether you get you know, unexpected inheritance, who knows, whatever would be the case, when you run into a situation like this where you've got extra cash, you know exactly where you're going to put that money. So you're essentially putting around some guardrails that, you know, yes, we should we should always enjoy the achievement and balance the achievement of financial goals with enjoying life along the way, right? If we're always squirreling money away for 30 or 40 years, it's kind of like, what's the point? But by having that prioritized list of goals, you're essentially putting some guardrails around avoiding lifestyle creep and letting that happen. So if, if, if somebody were to find themselves in this situation and they didn't yet have an emergency fund, or if they had credit card debt, those are the two things that I always focus on first. And here I'm of course making generalizations without knowing each and every person's, you know, individual financial plan. So Tim Baker, our certified financial planner refers those two steps as baby stepping into your financial plan, having a fully funded emergency fund and having high interest rate credit card debt paid off. So those would be the two places. And then from there, you begin to think about what other goals 
are going on and what's what's the personal situation? What does that all involve? So where are you at with retirement savings and investing based on the goals that you have set and how much you'll need at retirement? When do you want to retire? How much do you need? All those types of variables. Is a home in the mix? You already have one. If not, how much and how, how, how much you want to buy? How much you want to put down? Kids, college, vacations, enjoyment, all these things get put into a list and you begin to prioritize them. So when you run into this situation, you can work down the list and you know exactly where you're going to fund them along the way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, I, I we talk about fairy tales, but, you know, who knows? I mean, this could happen That's to right. anyone. One, if you're, you know, have a great plan financially with where your loans are going to be paid off soon or we get lucky and, um, you know, uh, one of these people uh, or even just whoever decides to say, oh, we're going to, you know, cancel all student debt and all of a sudden you don't have any more debt. Um, mm-hmm. One thing that does come to mind, though, and, and so we're going to start getting into a little bit of, uh, you know, talks that aren't as positive as I like to keep things on the podcast. But yeah, one also downside about, you know, some of the plans that are being announced is, you know, people are upset because one, we are if if that if this sort of plan does go through, we're essentially making someone else pay for, you know, our decisions in life, you know, quote yeah. unquote. Um, and then, uh, two, what about the people that's kind of, you know, busted their butts to try to pay off those loans and, mm-hmm. you know, and pay down all that debt that they were responsible for. And then all of a sudden these people coming on along after them don't have to put in all that work that they did. So it, it definitely, you know, there, there's definitely a lot of different perspectives and a lot of different, um, things that people can either like or dislike about these um, about these particular plans. I don't know if you have any thoughts that you want to throw in there at all. Yeah, I, I, I do. And, and actually, um, we, we had some discussion on the YFP, um, Facebook page, uh, might've been in the group of the page. I'm not, I'm not sure which off the top of my head about this exactly. So I think we posted Bernie Sanders plan and just got some discussion started. And there was really a range of, of comments to your point. I mean, there were some sentiments of, you know, this is not fair to those that have worked so hard to pay off their loans or those that maybe their family, you know, saved for years to help them or they didn't have to take on that debt or pursued scholarships. Um, so there, I think there's some of that or there that aspect of personal responsibility or, you know, all the lessons that you learn while you're going through um, paying off student debt. And, and does this really address kind of the core issues and problems around, um, you know, cost of higher education and personal finance, literacy and education? And then I think there's there's some of the opposite standpoint, probably more so from those that are currently struggling with debt repayment is, hey, what you know, to the previous question, this would really help me out, you know, in terms of I'm really struggling month to month or, you know, I'd love to be able to do A, B or C. And this would really help me be able to do that by taking some of the burden uh, off my back. So I, th- I think this is a good discussion um, to just continue. And again, to my comment earlier is that these discussions around loan forgiveness, in my opinion, need to happen in a much, much broader, more comprehensive discussion around all the issues that we've been talking about. Because just looking at one of them, uh, you know, one of our uh, members in the page had mentioned that any student loan forgiveness program or free college plan, you know, really needs to be paired and coupled with a plan to decrease the cost of college. Because if, if those two things aren't happening in tandem in terms of forgiveness as well as addressing the cost, you know, we may not really be getting to the true issue. And I would even add on to that in terms of some of the other things. I think about my four young kids at home at a very young age, you know, they're learning hopefully good, but some bad, you know, habits for me as well around personal finance. So a lot of this starts in the home. It starts in the education system. 
And again, in my comments earlier, when you start talking about those types of issues, you know, when you deal with education and you deal with other variables, they become very complex in terms of how we how we address them. Yeah. So with the crazy news um, that happened recently, and while this is probably one of the larger pieces of these types of news we've heard in a while, I mean, this has been a trend that's been going on for at least the last five or 10 years um, with pharmacies closing, um, you know, jobs, the, the market saturation is, is increasing, um, people being laid off. Uh, you know, this one a little bit unique with Walmart where, you know, yeah. a, a, allegedly, I don't know if this is, I don't think this has been officially confirmed by Walmart. This is all, I think, where the, the Bloomberg reported that a person familiar with the matter right. said that it was 40% of, you know, senior mm-hmm. pharmacists, um, which, so let's assume that's true. That means that they're, you know, trying to streamline uh, wages, things like that. But let's just say that, you know, uh, there's an individual that's in a terrible situation like this where they get to a point where because they just potentially lost their job and their mainstream of mm-hmm. income, they can't pay for a loan. Mm-hmm. What what are their options there? If if that's like in, if they're in that extreme position and they can't pay for a loan, what what happens? What are consequences? G- give us some details around that. Yeah, and I think this is a really, really important conversation because um, the, the news I had read related to Walmart is it impacted senior pharmacists. And I think there are some projections as well around new hires and part-time workers. Um, and I think those may have very different implications around where somebody's at and their debt repayment, other goals they're, they're achieving or not achieving. Do they have credit card debt? Do they not? So obviously we know it can impact those people in a very different way. But the other reason I think it's a really important conversation is we've had news here in central Ohio of pharmacists that has been, of course, known nationally around going from 40 hours to 32, 32 becoming the new norm. So whether it's Walmart or another company, whether somebody's working full-time or gets cut to part-time or gets hours cut, whatever would be the situation, I think we're going to see more and more pharmacists that are in this question and situation of, hey, what can I do if I can't make my student loan payment? And this really gets to the option around deferment or forbearance. And you know, I think when we hear those words, we think, oh my gosh, stay away as far as you can. But the important point I want to make here with deferment or forbearance, and I'll differentiate those here in a moment, is that both of those, while they may sound terrible in terms of an option to pursue, if you pursue them and you pursue them wisely with a plan in place, they will not have a negative impact on your credit. And so what we're trying to avoid is default. Default is really worst case scenario when it comes to student loans. So the options I'm thinking about is if I'm somebody who's making aggressive student loan payments, and I find out that I'm getting cut part-time or maybe temporarily I'm, I'm in, in search for another job. Um, I'm going to first see if I can switch to an income-driven repayment plan where I don't have to go into deferment or forbearance, but I can adjust my payments because, of course, that adjusts with, with income. So if I go from 40 to 32 or I go from 40 to 20, whatever be the case, hopefully that won't be permanent and you can make a transition and get back on pace with, with the rest of your financial goals, including your student loans. But the whole point of income driven repayment plans, and here we're talking about things like pay, repay, IBR, ICR, is that they adjust up and down as your income adjusts up and down. Now that may sound really good. And obviously if your if your payment goes down, as your income goes down, it most likely will mean that your your interest is probably accruing faster than your monthly payment. So that has its own challenges. But you're not altogether stopping payments. And I think that's important, not only actually making the financial momentum, but also behaviorally, you still feel like you're making momentum. Whereas with deferment or forbearance, you're actually going to stop making payments. And these are options that are available to you 
specifically in the federal system. Now, when it comes to the private lenders, it depends on the lender. So you have to work with them individually. Many of them do not, but some of them will offer um, forbearance or deferment provisions. But essentially, when it comes to your federal loans, whether it's deferment or forbearance, the idea is that you are stopping making payments for a period of time. Now, the one advantage, if I had to say one of these is better than the other, the one advantage of deferment over forbearance is that if any of the listeners have um, certain types of loans, most notably, these would be subsidized loans or Perkins loans, they would actually not have to pay the interest or the interest would not accrue while you're in the deferment period. So if somebody's listening and they have subsidized loans, they have uh, Perkins loans and they're thinking about deferment or forbearance, for that reason, there probably would be an advantage around deferment. However, most pharmacy student loans, which is most of a graduate's indebtedness today, they're not going to have subsidized loans. Most of them are going to be unsubsidized. So in that stance, it's really not going to matter in terms of the interest that's, that's saved. So if you can, option one for me, Richard, would be pursue or try to pursue an income-driven repayment plan so you can continue to make payments for the reasons that I mentioned. If not, then I think it's pursuing deferment or forbearance with the goal of trying to avoid default defaulting on those loans. So it sounds like the deferment in that one case is kind of like literally just hitting like a pause button. Yeah. If if somebody only has subsidized loans or Perkins loans, they could essentially hit pause if they get approved. And there's obviously some application and there's time periods around these, but they would hit pause. And for those subsidized or Perkins loans, they would essentially that interest wouldn't keep ticking. Whereas if you go into forbearance and when it comes to your unsubsidized loans and your other loans, interest continues to accrue on all of those loans. So let's say you go into a 10-month forbearance period. If you've got $150,000 of debt and you're at an average interest rate of 6%, you know, yes, you're going to get through that hardship period by not having to make payments, but your student loan balance at the end of that 10-month period is going to be greater than what you started with because that interest is going to continue to accrue and continue to compound. So you want to use it wisely. I really look at it as an emergency situation to do anything you can to avoid defaulting. But better yet would be, can you get an income-driven repayment plan so you don't have to utilize deferment or forbearance? But know that they're there, and that's really the intent. One of the intents is financial hardship if you need them for situations such as this. So what are the differences between the um, forbearance and and deferment? Deferment. Yeah, so besides the which loans um, may have the interest not accruing, so that's really the biggest thing. So subsidize federal student loans and Perkins loans the interest would not accrue during deferment. Whereas in forbearance, it doesn't matter. Interest is accruing on all loans. So that's really one of the biggest differences. The other difference is the length. So with deferment, the length, while it varies by deferment type, some last as long as three years, while others will be available as long as you qualify. Whereas forbearance, it lasts for no more than 12 months at a time. And essentially we'll have to reapply uh, through that process. So there's some interest advantages to deferment if you have those those certain types of loans. And then there's a difference around the time period. But in both situations, it would have no negative impact on credit. So again, remember, these provisions are there for a reason. Income-driven repayment option I'd pursue first, then I'd pursue one of these second. And you can work with your loan servicer um, to evaluate these options further. Now, does the any one of these loan forgiveness programs affect, sorry, the in terms of a hardship where you need to postpone payments, does it potentially affect your ability to be a part of a program that's involving loan forgiveness? 
It does now. So with Bernie and, and um, Elizabeth Warren's plans, obviously, you know, the way they have those structured, um, it would take a lot of this out of play. But right now with, with public service loan forgiveness uh, and even with non-public service loan forgiveness, there's a with, with PSLF is one example. You have to make 120 qualifying payments. So if you're in a forbearance or deferment period, those obviously don't count as qualifying payments during that time because you're not making a payment. Right. Um, however, keep in mind that with PSLF, those don't have to be consecutive payments. So while it may extend your time, so if you're off for a year of making payments, now maybe the 10 years becomes 11 years, it doesn't disqualify you altogether for PSLF, but that one year or whatever the time period would be where you're not making payments, those don't count towards your 120 qualifying payments. So yes, it would have an impact. Wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. That's a lot of information. (laughs) It is. And these are great discussions. And, um, you know, I, I'm happy if, if your listeners have, have further questions, they can shoot us an email over at info at your And we've got lots of resources. I mentioned one episode 78 of the podcast. We've got it's episode 18. We also talk about PSLF and we've got some other podcast resources. And then we've got the Facebook group and community really out there with the, with the hope and goal that people are asking these types of questions and getting encouragement and getting those questions answered from from others in the community. Yeah, and I would highly encourage people to go in there and, um, you know, whether you're involved in your some of these Facebook groups, you know, whether you're going to be actively, you know, talking about your stores or whether you're just seeing what other people are doing um, and definitely checking out all the information on their websites. It's super helpful. And I think that we are undereducated um, on all this stuff because I learned a bunch today, you know, even and I've been, you know, out paying loans for five years now. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> you know, there's always new stuff to learn, new things to learn around how we can better uh, manage our finances and our student loans. So um, really appreciate all that. But uh, before before I kind of close out here, I do want to ask a completely random question. Yeah. If you had to take anyone out to dinner and the person had to be famous and they have to still be alive, who would that be and why? Ooh, if I had to take anybody out to dinner and they had to be famous and I, and they had to be alive. So wow. That's a, gr- that's a great question. Um, I should have a Wikipedia page. If I can't find them on Wikipedia, I'm coming back at you. And you cannot, yeah, I, I, you cannot use Donald Trump or Obama <laughs> or any of the Obamas cause they have been taken or Jeff Bezos. Cause that's becoming a popular option. You can't use any of those four. Yeah. You know, for, first thing that came to mind was some dead people, but your, your question before I answer it, is really timely because one of the things I think often about is a, is the concept of, of legacy and really whether it's looking at somebody who served in a, in a high leadership role, started their own company, served as a president, really trying to figure out why people do what they do and what drives them in terms of leaving a legacy and what they do. So the first person that came to mind um, comes from one of the books that had probably the greatest influence on me in terms of my own personal financial journey and how I think about personal finance would be Robert Kiyosaki, who wrote Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Um, you know, if you ask people about what's what's the number one or number two financial book that's impacted your life, you'll often hear that book. And I think it's it's such a different way of, of thinking about money that once once you read it, I think really transforms the way you, way you think about it. I know it has for me in terms of business, uh, real estate, just how my wife and I manage our finances. And I'd love I'd love to be able to sit down and kind of pick his brain about some of the concepts around that book. So that, that was the first person that came to mind. And that book, I've read that book as well. And it's an easy read too, right? Yeah. Like it's, it's yeah. not as intimidating as some other um, books out there that, you know, uh, that are, that are really famous and um, ends up being like a thousand pages long with like real hard vocabulary. Like that was actually an easy read. That's a great, it is, it is an easy read. It's one that I think you read 
more than once and you go back to and you take something different from it, you know, when you read it a second or third time. Yeah. Great. Well, Tim, thank you so much uh, for all your insights. I really appreciate being on the show. Thanks, Richard. Appreciate it. I do hope that you got as much out of that episode as I did. I learned a whole lot about student loans, all the plans that have been proposed. I don't know how all this is going to play out, but um, as I'm sure every single student with student loans or previous student loans is going to be paying attention, I will be following closely as well. If you're listening on iTunes and you haven't subscribed yet, please go ahead and hit that subscribe button. Uh, Leave us a rating. Let me know what you think. I do read through all the comments and I try to figure out ways to make the show better. Um, So I'd appreciate any feedback. And connect with me on any of your favorite social media platforms. I'm pretty much on all of them. And as always, I really do appreciate you tuning in. And I hope you have a great rest of your day. Pharmacy.